Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library. The Leeds Library is a podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. Hi, I'm Molly McGrath and I am the Projects Assistant at the Leeds Library, and today our guest is Dr Emily Zobel Marshall. Emily Zobel Marshall is a reader in post-colonial literature and course director for BA and MA English Literature at Leeds Beckett. Her research specialisms are Caribbean literature and Caribbean carnival cultures. She's an expert on the trickster figure in the folklore, oral cultures and literature of the African diaspora and has published widely in these fields. She also has established a Caribbean carnival cultures research platform and network that aims to bring the critical, creative, academic and artistic aspects of carnival into dialogue with one another. She is vice chair of the David Olawale Memorial Association, a charity committed to fighting racism and homelessness and a creative associate of the Geraldine Connor Foundation. Emily, welcome. Hello. Thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. Thank you, Molly. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about in this podcast, but I first wanted to ask you about carnival. As I mentioned in the introduction, carnival culture is one of your research specialisms. You've established a car- Caribbean carnival cultures research platform and network, and you've researched carnivals across the UK and the Caribbean. I think a lot of people think of carnival as this big street party where everyone gets dressed up and has a good time which of course it is, but there's also so much more to it than that. I'm going to quote an Arts Council article you wrote here in saying that traditional Caribbean cultural forms have long been shaped by their ability to provide a psychological outlet for Caribbean people, both on the plantations and during the post-emancipation period. Those who play mass uh, masquerade in Caribbean carnivals reenact rituals of enslavement and liberation as a way of dealing with both the traumas of the past and the equalities of the present. Can you talk to me a little bit about the importance of carnival? Yes, uh, I can, Molly. Well, there's so much to say, it's hard to know where to start. Um, but, you know, as you quoted there in the article, um, carnival is very much more than just a hedonistic a street party. It is that too, and mm. that is wonderful, um, you know, drinking and dancing and, and, and celebration and joy, and that's a hugely important part of carnival. But Caribbean carnival in particular, um, is actually a a form of ritual, if you like. Um, These traditional uh, um, masquerade um, uh, cultural forms originate both in Europe and in Africa. Um, And what we find is that when when the enslaved were taken from West Africa and brought to the Caribbean, their traditions, their music, their costuming, um, amalgamated with those of European planters. Um, those European planters, especially the French, had their own masquerading traditions. They were mm. Catholic-rooted traditions. So the planters would have their masked balls um, a- around Easter time, and the slaves would also have their own celebrations in the slave quarters. Now, both traditions of carnival are based around the idea of toppling the hierarchy. Mm. So you have a particular space um, uh, where you are able to do things that you wouldn't normally do. 
um, and the hierarchy turns on its head. Mm. Now, one of the theories around carnival is that when eventually the planters allowed slaves to have some of their own small carnivals, it was like a pressure cooker for the enslaved. So you were able to celebrate carnival, but then after carnival, the normal rules would then be reapplied. And after letting off steam, you can then mm. become a kind of more uh, rule-abiding person. Now, I argue that actually within those carnival cultures, there's always the threat of chaos, you know, of resistance, of actually turning the tables on those that oppress you. And that's what's so incredibly vital around carnival. And, and that's just one of the aspects. There's also all these amazingly rich traditions in performance, um, in dance, in costuming, in music that have carried over from West Africa and then become creolized in the Caribbean. Mm. And do you, so is that a kind of a constantly evolving uh, thing where new traditions are, are being created all the time in different, so is there, are there any like Leeds uh, traditions or I guess the London Carnival is the, the Notting Hill Carnival is the most famous yes. kind of one. Yeah. Well, there, there are, and I think, you're, you know, you're right, it's, it's always a, a process that is evolving and it's picking up part of the contemporary cultural mm. context. Um, but, uh, yes, Notting Hill Carnival is, is considered to be the, you know, the, the biggest and often seen as the most important carnival, mm. in Caribbean carnival in the UK, but actually Leeds Carnival is the first Caribbean street party yeah. run by Caribbean people. And its founder, um, Arthur France, said, you know, that the reasons for putting that carnival on the street in Leeds is that they said that Caribbean people couldn't organise themselves, black people couldn't organise themselves. And for him, establishing that carnival was a way of showing that actually they could and they could, you know, throw this, this, this great big celebration uh, properly on the streets. And actually, in those early stages of Leeds West Indian Carnival, um, the, uh, the, the, the kind of founding committee were helped by institutions in Leeds. They were helped mm. by the police. The police were on board. The universities were on board. The council helped. So um, so Leeds has got this incredibly rich carnival tradition that you can yeah. still see now. And it's the, it's the longest-running carnival in Europe, is that, yeah, is that right? right? Which I was really surprised to, yes. to learn, Yeah, Caribbean actually. carnival, longest-running, oh, okay. yeah. Longest yeah. Caribbean carnival. And since then, you know, it's just grown and grown. Mm. And... Uh, now we see you know, all sorts of kind of very, I think, uh, you know, contemporary ways of of, of, uh, of of using carnival as a form of expression. But then you also get long-standing Caribbean traditions mm. that, you, like, for example, there's a troupe called the Blue Devils, mm -hmm. um, and you'll see them in traditional masquerade in the Caribbean, and you, you paint yourself completely in blue, and the idea is that you're meant to be a you know, terrifying yeah. figure um, and that's a very traditional masquerade and and actually it has its roots in enslavement in in plantation history so uh, one of the one of the um, origins of the blue devil is that black people would be called by white planters your devil mm -hmm. jabbler so um, so it's a way of kind of you take on you take that on, um, and you say, "Okay, I am the devil." Then you, kind you of know, turn it on fear me, and, fear yeah, me, yeah, yeah. 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 Be I frightened. Really, I really, and I think actually a lot of your work with the the trickster figure, which we'll talk about later on, but I really like the the focus on 
moral kind of ambiguity or or you know these figures that are a bit chaotic and they're not so cut and dried and I think they're actually there's so much we can learn from that uh when there's a lot of I don't know I feel that there's a lot of moral kind of posturing uh that goes on at the moment and and really embracing kind of um something that's a bit more ambiguous and a bit darker and a bit more chaotic is really uh can be really useful yes and i i agree and and you know the the trickster figure like many elements of carnival are not born out of a a a christian framework Mm. so it's not about the that you know that binary between good and evil mm. um, and th- seeing the world is split into two, but actually yeah. accepting that there are multiple forces at play yeah. in all sorts of situations. Yeah, and it allows for a kind of, it allows for a plurality of voices and experiences to exist at the same time and and it celebrates that, um, mm. which I think is really cool because, yeah, we're not all goodies and baddies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in real and, life. and some people don't and think the trickster stories teaches the wrong kind of morals to children. Mm. But actually, a trickster story doesn't necessarily encourage children to do as the trickster does. Mm. But you can think about how you might not get tricked. Mm. Or perhaps in a particular situation, when the odds are against you, maybe trickery is the right way to mm. go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Moving on, the next thing I, I wanted to ask you about is your work with uh, Remember David Oluwali, which is a Leeds-based charity whose aim is to promote racial equality, diversity and racial harmony by telling the story of, of David Oluwali. So can you tell me a bit about who he was and the work that the charity does? Yes, um, so David Oluwali was a, a, a migrant, he was actually a stowaway who came over from Nigeria in um in the 50s to Leeds and he came here to work um, and, and he did work, he worked. He had several different jobs in Leeds um, and he was tragically murdered at the hands of the West Yorkshire police. He was found drowned uh, in the River Eyre um, and so in the 60s. So um, the Remember Oluwali Association is about looking at the story of David Oluwali and thinking about how the city can move forward and learn from the mistakes of the past. One of the most terrible things about the Oluwali story is that the police officers, uh, Elika and Kitchen, um, they hounded him. Mm. So for quite a long period of time, David was actually sleeping rough and and also suffered from mental health problems. He was actually uh, in hyroids mental health institution mm. uh, for several years where he, he was subjected to electric shock therapy. Um, and when he came out of high rods, he, he was homeless. So he was homeless, suffering from mental health problems, probably impacted by the stay you know, mm. in, in that kind of institution. Um, and two uh, West Yorkshire police officers you know, took it upon themselves you know, to hound him over several years and eventually hounded him to death. So they would seek him out at the doorways that he knew he would sleep in, they knew he would be sleeping in, um, and they would beat him up or they'd drive him into the middle of Middleton Woods in the dark at night and beat him up and leave him there to disorientate him. Mm. But he always came back, he always came back to sleep in the same doorway. There was a kind of tenacity and, and stubbornness and a kind of resistance in what he did because he, mm. he actually claimed that city space, you know, he... he and um, so these were racist attacks 
Um, and and so we what we try and do as a charity is use that story to make sure that things like this don't happen again in the city of Leeds and to combat uh, mental health issues, homelessness and issues mm. around racial equality. But we do that through the arts, mm. so using the arts as a platform for social justice. So one of the projects that Remember Oluwale is um, working on at the moment is creating a, a park and sculpture garden in the city centre just south of the River Air, very near to where, uh, to the point where David Oluwale was drowned in 1969. One of the plans is to um, inst- install a sculpture by Inka Shonabare, who's a British-Nigerian artist whose work often centres around cultural identity, colonialism and post-colonialism within the contemporary context of globalisation. Um, and for listeners, you may recognise his work um, from the Ankara fabrics or Dutch wax prints that he often uses. Um, and he's got a piece in the British Library, uh, no, a piece in the Tate Modern called the British Library, uh, which is 6,328 hardback books by first or second generation immigrants to the UK, um, which have been recovered in this Ankara fabric. And also he he did the, the ship in a bottle in Trafalgar Square, I think, which is quite... Um, have, you see, have you seen any of them? Any of yeah. the pieces? So, yeah. Well, the reason I brought up the British Library one was because I love it, because yeah. I, I saw it recently and I was just kind of, it feel it felt actually like being in this room where we're recording. <laughs> yes, because it yes. was it was probably about the same amount of books, and it was when you're physically uh, kind of surrounded by books. It it's this amazing kind of I, I you, when you say in your introduction to the book that you wrote um, in this library that mm. it felt like a womb like space. Yes, I kind of I got that. In, impression from that piece of work and and from being in here as well yes yeah um yeah wonderful yeah there's that sort of re and that reclaiming of knowledge by covering it yeah 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 yeah. and he i I think there's like a he recreated a a fragonard painting you know the girl on the swing um with the the wax print as well so that kind of inserting like uh post-colonial narratives into you know the western canon i think is such yeah, I love it. I really and, love his work. And then, sorry, just to add, you know, and what's I think so interesting is as well is that Ankara fra- fabric, it's mm. very hybrid, isn't it? Because mm. it's not actually traditionally from yeah. West Africa, but actually was born by, uh, brought by the Dutch yeah. um, colonizers and then from kind of Indonesia. Back to- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a hybrid. So it's like yeah. a celebration of this kind of hybridity of yeah. cultures. Well, they, I, I mean, actually, I could be really wrong about this, but the, the, the way that they make it is like a batik. And that that's right. comes from Japan, I think. Yes, maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's really. It's a global. It's a global. Yeah, material. Exactly. It's a Global print, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's so much kind of. You can't. That fabric couldn't exist without all of these these structures. Yeah, which these have histories. been so harmful, but you know, then it's the really joyful, kind of celebratory print. I think and yeah. very beautiful. Um, so, yeah, can you, uh, well, I guess, yeah, the idea of um, creativity and art being used to combat uh, racial prejudice is is really interesting. And, and I think the garden as a space is, again, one of these, like the carnival and like the trickster, it's a, it's a kind of ambiguous and changeable space mm. where you can have, you know, a plurality of different voices and experiences and and you can I think uh yeah I really liked your um 
uh, on your website where it it's kind of states the aim of the gardens, the aims of the garden, which is that everyone is welcome. It's a sanctuary for all of those who are vulnerable. Uh, the diversity and cultures and needs are are expressed. Quiet reflection is possible. Debate about the issues facing the, the city of Leeds may take place. Pleasure and conviviality are to be enjoyed. Social justice is promoted. Growth takes place. Creativity in all its forms abounds. Performance is produced and the gardens will be playful places attractive to people of all ages and types. So, yeah, can you talk to me a bit about um, your vision for the park and the work that's gone into creating it so far and why it's important to have, to highlight creativity and art and these kind of positive processes when you talk about combating racism yes and I hope you know what like looking at those aims I really hope we complete them all yes. <laughs> we've set the standard high haven't we <laughs> um yeah it, we're really excited about this this Olawali Memorial Garden which the idea is that it's going to be um ready for LEED 2023 which is that celebration mm. of the city of culture in Leeds so so we think that it tells a really important story about the history of Leeds which is well, you know, we talked about that, the, the, the tragic past of Olawali, but Leeds is a city which is embracing of all its diversity, you know, which is also happy to confront its past mm-hmm. um, and acknowledge it rather than shy away from it. So that can, you know, a place that can, we can also think about the tragedies of the past mm-hmm. um, and, but also think about how we can move forward into a better future. But I always think that it's important not to, to shy away from, from stories which are difficult, you know, mm. or, or, or tragic or violent, because we want to always tell a positive narrative. Mm. So, so yes, yeah, the, the the park itself is going to have this incredible piece by Yinka Shonibare, and it'll probably be announced by the time this podcast uh, goes out, okay. uh, because it, the what it'll actually look like is a top secret at the moment, mm, but wow. it's it's going to be quite epic, yeah. an epic scale. Um, and and we want it, as you say, you know, in your description, to be a place that um, people can come to and talk um, and have that performance space as well. We want to have it as a place where people, we have poetry readings, we have events, we have music. There's going to be a children's playground as well. So so the idea is, is that it's a space that is for the city. You know, mm-hmm. we want to make sure that it's, we, we, so it's not a space that, that throws out homeless people it's mm. not a space that has those anti-skate skateboarding uh, um, um, you know kind of hubs on yeah so so that it's a space that, that is welcoming of, of everybody um and 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 Yinka you know as you just said is the perfect person to animate the space with this sculpture um and so what Yinka does is very much use his artwork as a platform to mm. call for social justice and thinking about history and thinking about our entangled histories, mm. but also the violence and the brutality that has gone into that entanglement. Mm. Uh, you know, like that Ankara print that we're talking about. You know, mm. there's so much, so many layers of oppression that have gone into the the, yeah. the manifestation of that print. But the print is also sort of beautiful and joyful and and yeah. become symbolic of. Of West African identity. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me about the David Oluwale's kind of story was that it, like you said, that kind of abuse by the police officers had gone on for many years yeah. before he was eventually murdered, and and you know there must have been so many points in that time where you know 
he was failed by all of these yeah. institutions and and by you know other police officers and and you know so many people there must have been so many points where that could have you know easily been preventable yeah. they, they no people didn't step in and stop yeah. them and and it was uh, you know afterwards and uh, some of their the, their colleagues yeah uh, did step up to to yeah. to um to, to, to speak up and, 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 and to talk about what they had done. But it was, you know, they, they, they pissed on him. Yeah. They did, they wanted to degrade him. Yeah. And they clearly took enjoyment in it yeah. and for over so many years. And it's just, you know, that it, it shows you the, the depth of the racist hatred. Yeah. That, that, uh, but that, and that goes on today. We only have to look at the, we know we, we, it was only a few days ago since we had mm. the, yeah, um, the Euro actually, yeah. finals, you know, and just the three black players missed the penalties. There's just a torrent of, of mm. racial abuse. But, but then, since that has happened, there's also been this big backlash and there's been yeah. pro, pro, peaceful protests. People have come together to uh, Rashford's memorial, yeah. uh, um, sorry, uh, mural was vandalized wasn't mm. it and then the local community came together to to kind of reclaim the mural so so it's those that's another example isn't it of how politicized art can be mm-hmm. as well and how yeah art becomes a focal point for that this that that struggle for equality yeah. and how important it is to not kind of turn a blind eye when you see you know these things happening and not kind of separate yourself and think oh well, it doesn't affect me I'm not being actively racist so you know therefore I wipe my hands and get about yeah it, you know? exactly the best thing you can always do is to call it out you know yeah. and to step in and if you can't step in physically then what we have now is the power of mobile phones yeah so record it yeah and it's that's the whole the whole, whole George Floyd Mm. story which is in a way you know that echoes with David Oluwali's story mm. um, you know a black man killed by police a racist police officer yeah. and if it wasn't for mobile phones then those we would never have those images those things have been happening yeah. for, for for decades yeah. but, but it's the power of the recording isn't it that we yeah. have now and I think in Britain we have a tendency to think oh it's so much worse in, in America yeah whereas actually uh yeah you're you're kind of this charity really highlights that the, the fact that you know institutionalized racism has been prevalent in Britain for many many years, yeah. and I think also um, your book as well traces the influence of African American culture from America to the UK, and we can see how these you know there's so much cross pollination and cross fertilization with the culture, and we can see how these kind of often racist stereotypes have worked their way into what seems like harmless children's stories but yes. actually aren't <laughs> yes yeah absolutely and the um i think that you know in the uk people like to think that we that it's less racist in america but we we practice a more uh, often covert rather than mm. overt form of, of mm-hmm. racism here so it's more surreptitious but mm. it's deeply institutionalized as you yeah. say which is why these kind of ambiguous places like gardens and carnivals are really you know they shake things up and are helpful and and, and you know a space like a garden where you can really yeah reflect I think is is really important yes. so I'm really I'm excited to see it <laughs> and I yeah I think there is um there is a, a an interesting through line in all your work which feels really refreshing um in the face of a lot of reactionary activism and politics we see playing out online and in the media um, and carnival culture 
and garden spaces and, and the trickster figure um, seem really kind of yeah needed and, and refreshing. My question is, do you think that activism focuses too often on divisive polemics and not enough on growth, discussion and creative ways to overcome the issues it seeks to address? Yes, absolutely. I think it does. And uh, I think, in the, you know, in, uh, unfortunately, in the wake of Brexit, in the wake of the pandemic, in the wake of Black Lives Matter movement, you know, we, we have become, uh, the politics around, especially around race, have become more and more Mm. divisive um, and we create these echo chambers don't we especially mm. on social media where everybody we follow and follows us we all agree with each other yeah. so that's great we're in our own little bubble preaching to the converted but as soon as somebody has an, an, an angle that we don't like we want to shut them down rather than listen to them so those of those people who around you who may be prejudiced, the important thing is to try and engage with them, mm. isn't it? And to think about how you might be able to change their narrative. It's the hardest thing to do. Mm. It's the hardest thing to do is to listen to somebody, you know, that you, you disagree with to the extent that it kind of <laughs> makes your guts ache. Yeah. <laughs> and then try and offer an alternative view. But actually that's what we need to be trying yeah. to do and to spend time and and uh yeah time and effort thinking about these things when you're kind of so encouraged to have a intention span of about five seconds that's yeah. what it feels like for me anyway yeah um is really interesting and that's yeah. why i think yeah libraries are quite good spaces for that because they really encourage kind of uh long form argument yes and and exactly and acquiring knowledge and it's yeah. with that knowledge that you can go forward i think um w when we had that sort of high to the black lives matter protests in last summer there were a lot of people a lot of uh, white people who suddenly thought oh my goodness i must know more i must educate mm. myself you know and for some people it did feel a bit like they had only just realized that mm. racism existed mm. so the first thing that often a lot of people did was consult the one black friend that they knew and said, explain it to me. Yeah. And that's actually a lot of work for that one black friend um, or two black friends. So I think that's the key thing for everybody who's on board with this is to educate themselves, but not to use yeah. um, people of colour as a resource for yeah, explaining exactly. everything. Use the resources that are meant for Use the resources, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so now we're going to talk about your book. American Trickster, Trauma, Tradition and Br'er Rabbit, which you wrote here in the library. So quickly before we discuss the book in more detail, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with the Leeds Library and writing your book here? Yes. So, yeah, as you say, Molly, I wrote um, a, really all of the book here. Um, and I was actually going through a difficult time because my daughter had been diagnosed with leukaemia mm. and she was uh, being treated at uh, the LGI, which is just a, you know, 10 minutes walk from here. Mm -hmm. So it was actually an, a really kind of healing space for me to be able to, in those breaks you know, between her treatment, um, I'd come down here and then just have that little bit of time to myself and just to be able to reflect, you know, on immerse myself in, in the work and to, for a moment, forget about, you know, all the chemotherapy and all the mm. treatments that were, that she had to undergo. And she's doing really well now, by the way. But um, but the the library was like a, a sanctuary for me. Yeah. And when you're in this library, I'm sure 
you know you'll agree it is there is something really womb-like about it isn't yeah. there it, it's it's like it's kind of it's so tucked away and it, that doorway it was kind of a bit yeah. hidden isn't it people not everybody knows that this library is here yeah and there's this, this wonderful sense of calm when you're yeah. here and sometimes people some of the more elderly members will fall asleep in the armchairs <laughs> And I just think, oh, that's just so calming, just yeah. to look at somebody, you know, relaxing to that extent, <laughs> but you're surrounded right. by I, books. I think there's such a kind of, uh, yeah, I guess healing aspect to, to, I think there's a sense of possibility in a library because there's so much kind of information stored away, and especially one like this, which the collection has been built up in quite a, you know, a unique and uh, bit erratic way by members. So there's a, a real sense of kind of, possibility that you don't really know what you're going to discover yes, yes um which is is really exciting and and interesting as well as yeah the actual space is very calm mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah and i'm i'm really interested in that dichotomy um in your work between the chaotic rebellious nature of carnival and the trickster um and then also yeah quieter more focused academia um, and I, I mean, to me, it feels like the two are intrinsically linked and feed into each other and you can't really have, you know, fun and joy without periods of focus and vice versa. And do you, I mean, I, I wonder if you try and incorporate both of those into your teaching work mm. at all. Yes, I think I do. Um, and I think I'm drawn to the trickster figure because both of my books have been about tricksters. So mm. my first one, Nancy's Journey, looked at uh, the transmission of trickster folk tales from West Africa to Jamaica and how those stories were used as a form of resistance because they're mm-hmm. all stories about how the, the powerful animal gets the better, um, uh, sorry, is, is, is uh, challenged by the smaller, less powerful animal. So the trickster in, in that book is, uh, is Nancy is a spider. And, and then this... My next book was about the Br'er Rabbit trickster figure. It's a, a, a rabbit figure. Again, one of the slaves' folk tales, which symbolises that turning the table on the oppressor. Mm. So I, use, I argue that these stories were used as strategies for resistance. And um, I think that I'm attracted to the trickster figure because the trickster... It's a little bit like the, the conversation we were having about carnival. The trickster acknowledges that there are rules that sometimes should be broken. Mm. And I'm... It, Personally, I, I feel that quite deeply, Yeah, <laughs> as my family will tell you. <laughs> of course, my rules should never be broken. <laughs> but, but also, if you, need, if you are in an environment where the odds are stacked against you, in a race, if you're living in a racist environment, if you're living mm. it's a, you know, in, a, in enslavement, then you have to find ways to duck and dive and cheat and use language, you know, your silver tongue, mm. to get out of things, to carve yourself a bit of space within that um, oppressive environment. So, um, so I, love the, I love the chaos of the trickster in the way that the trickster is able to turn the tables and upset the hierarchy and bring that kind of random and unstructured quality into the world. Mm. But then, yeah, I think for me, I I also need that quiet time, that that just, I like to write poetry as well as academic writing. So I need to have, I I really like total quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, you know, even in the library, if I'm in the room which has the window open yeah. in this library and, they, yeah. and they, we can hear the um, people singing, you know, or the busking. And yes, some people I'm think, exactly the same, yeah. actually. <laughs> Sometimes at like 4 p.m. when you're trying to put... Yeah, some people focus. think, oh, it's so nice, you know, singing Amazing Grace. I'm like, oh. You the know. jazz is good sometimes, actually, to yeah. be fair. You have to be in the right mood. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, you've actually. There's a wonderful quote in your in your book actually, which I'll I'll read about the trickster figures, and it goes. But above all, as symbols of chaos and freedom, tricksters are an expression of the innate human desire to thwart societal rules and overturn oppressive oppressive regimes. As creatures of the threshold, they revel in their ambiguous identities on the borderlands of cultural space. I really like that one. I thought that that summed it up really well. Um, so yeah, the book focuses on. Ex- exploring the story of Br'er Rabbit and its origins in African folklore and how it was brought over by slaves and then kind of um, appropriated by white folklorists. And then, yeah, this figure made its way into so many aspects of of popular culture and children's media. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about who Br'er Rabbit is? Yes, I can. So Br'er Rabbit is... So it's a, 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 a rabbit, but he's um, actually the stories that were brought over to um, America with the enslaved are different to the ones that were brought over to the Caribbean with mm. the enslaved because they came from different ethnic groups. So the wet, the, the original wet stories in in Africa were told by different ethnic groups. So some of the Br'er Rabbit stories are also similar to the Anansi stories in the Caribbean. It's a similar mm. trickster figure. So Br'er Rabbit is um, is constantly hungry, oversexed, you know, wanting to always, you know, find a, find a, a, um, a woman. Um, quite a macho figure in some ways. It mm. kind of expresses a very traditional, uh, virile concept of, of masculinity. Mm. Um, and so the, the, the majority of stories are about how uh, Br'er Rabbit is trying to steal from Massa's garden. So ma- these are the, in the... African American context, so it's Br'er Rabbit, little little tricks figures trying to get food. As normally mm. it's either famine or it's on the plantations and it's trying to get food from master, or it could be tiger, it could be another powerful animal. And the way that he gets his food, he gets his, is through using his brains rather than his brawn, mm. and using all sorts of sly ways to to manage to outwit. Um, and to get the food and and that's you know if you think of that plantation context as well you know that to try and to eat to stay alive that that was obviously a huge yeah concern um but also it's an I, I think an expression it's an expression of resistance an expression of of that built up pent-up hatred as well mm. of, of your oppressors yeah that are expressed in the story yeah and these so these kind of Br'er Rabbit and, and these anthropomorphized animal trickster mm. figures have have seeped their way. Like there's so many that I mean, you know, Disney is Song of the South was based off um, some of these Br'er Rabbit stories. But actually, they before that there was this figure called Joel Chandler Harris, who was a a white folklorist who was like the the vector for these stories becoming so famous, but also. He, in his retelling of them, he framed them and, and kind of appropriated them in, in ways which were a bit problematic sometimes. So could you tell me about um, 
Joel Chandler Harris in the role that he played. Yes, yeah, I can. Joel Chandler Harris, goodness me. So unlike the Anansi stories in the Caribbean, those Anansi stories never were picked up by white folklorists and adapted to white culture in the same way that the trickster stories in America were. Mm. So what we find in America is that at the, um, in the, at the, in the late um, 19th century, a lot of folklorists turn towards uh, African-American folklore and start gathering songs, stories, proverbs. And it's, it's sort of, it's partly a kind of nostalgia for, this is a, for, for, a, for, for that period of plantation history. Mm. And Joel Chandler Harris, he grew up at a time when, you know, he, 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 he spanned the, the Civil War. So yeah. he remembered a time you know, when slaves were slaves. Yeah. And, and then he saw the effects of, of abolition. And he, uh, in many ways, hankered for that time, you know. Yeah. When, and, and so the stories are, his collection, very much driven by wanting to return to a, an imaginary space where you have these kindly black storytellers, you know, sit the white boy on his knee and tell him nice stories about, you know, the plantation and... and and Br'er Rabbit and, and all of that. Mm. And um, and so but Joel Chandler Harris did collect hundreds and hundreds of stories. Um, he did write them in the vernacular, so he, mm. he really had an ear for it. He was mm. a journalist. He also spent a lot of time with, with, with um, former slaves collecting the stories. Um, and, and he also had a kind of a love, you know, and a, and yeah. a re- respect for the culture. And another complex thing, and adding to this layers of complexity, is he, along with many, many other folklorists and many other whites, you know, had grown up around black people, would often have had a black nursemaid, mm. so actually felt a part of that culture. We talk about the sense of ownership, actually, over these narratives, because, yeah, he'd grown up on a, on a plantation. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that's for a child as well, to grow up, you know, amongst... Uh, to, having black servants, having a, a, a black woman, a nanny looking after mm. you, to then, you know, as you get older, to be told that these are, you know, subhuman people, mm. that these are people who are secondary to you, is, it kicks off a, a really complex process of psychological fragmentation. Mm. And I, th- I think I can, that's what I see in, in Joel Chandler Harris's um attitude towards these stories but he published lots of collections and they were really popular amongst white american readers and um and and all over the world and they inspired like a whole movement of of anthropomorphizing Mm. animals in in children's stories um uh, beatrix potter got her stories directly from joel chandler harris she actually illustrated one of his first collections she was asked to illustrate it after that, she comes up with Peter Rabbit. You know, he's essentially Br'er Rabbit. There's even the African-American vernacular in the stories, like lickety-split, lickety-split. Mm. But never does she acknowledge. She says in her diaries, perhaps I will be accused of plagiarism. So she does, there's a sort of, but she doesn't ever publicly acknowledge that actually yeah. these Lake District stories are, are yeah. based on slave stories. And uh, Enid Blyton as well, I think. Uh, created her, I think she rewrote them or, or, yes. or um, she made her own Br'er Rabbit stories yeah, yeah several collections um, and I think The Wind in the Willows as well yeah, was kind of inspired, inspired by, yeah. and 
who else do you talk about? The not uh, I think A.A. Milne kind of denied that it, it had influenced his uh, Winnie the Pooh books, but his, yeah. his illustrator, I think, was definitely um, influenced by yes. the Bear Rabbit yeah. stories. Yes. So all of this stuff, all of these children's books that we think of as really quintessentially British actually have their origins in American slavery, which is, you know, I had no idea about mm. that. So I was really kind of shocked to to realise that. And I think, so I think you talk about um, after the, the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s gained momentum, um, these Joel Chandler Harris's uh, Bear Rabbit stories became... Um, they were kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, this, yeah, they become like a, they become a, 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 a fantasy of when everybody knew their place. Yeah, you know. Or the, but they were that they were kind of um, uh, forgotten about because people wanted to distance themselves. Yes, um, yeah. from them because yeah. it, an unbook is an what un-book. it was. Yeah, yes, it was sorry, so, as, uh, John Goldthwait, I yeah. think. Um, you quote him in saying that Harris's work became an unbook after the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, and you also explain, so this is another quote, the effects of writers distancing themselves from Harris as a source of influence meant that his original tellers, the African-American slaves from whom he collected the stories, were not credited for their contribution in the creation of the anthropomorphic animals that filled the pages of children's storybooks, mainly in Europe and America in the 20th century. Indeed, in the heart of Potter's Lake District, a quintessential British landscape, we find an African trickster figure, yet very few scholars or readers of Potter's work have made this thing. And it's because they were, you know, so Song of the South, that Disney movie that we all kind of know was, yeah. uh, um, I guess cancelled isn't, uh, wasn't the, the word they used at the no. time, but it was um, widely criticised for being racist, but that was an adapt- adaptation of Chandler Harris exactly yes yeah and you see that sort of real you know what's gone on to be described as the, the Uncle Tom character yeah. uh, of the storyteller and in in Disney's version it's that's that famous song you know yippity doo da yippity day everything is satisfactorial satisfactorial yeah. you know so it's that idea that yes on the plantations everybody was satisfied yeah you know? um so yeah it they became uh, they old-fashioned you know and and um obviously you know Politically, they were not considered um, something that people wanted to align themselves with. Mm. But, the, you know, you go online now, you see people defend, um, Americans, white Americans defend um, yeah. Bear Rabbit stories, you know, to the hilt. Yeah. Uh, why, you know, why are we destroying part of our culture? There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's uh, political correctness gone mad and yeah. so on and so forth. And I think... Um, it's important for these stories not to become invisible, um, mm. but what we need to do is to look at them with the analytical eye. Yeah, well, I like the the angle that you take in the book, which is that by the you know this kind of cultural distancing from the bear rabbit stories, not only do we separate ourselves from the you know the racism of, of those stories, but actually we we forget their origins and and those you know African American slaves are. Are, are forgotten altogether yeah so those that is lost as well at yeah. the same time and because it's such a complicated the narrative of these stories making their way into popular culture is so complicated that you'd lose both yes yeah um, if you forget them exactly molly exactly i just have to now I've, I, 
um, you know, have that dialogue with the Beatrix Potter yeah. Society, <laughs> who have actually been helpful yeah. with the writing of the book. But I've not, ne- I've not, I want to do a pa- write a paper specifically about Beatrix mm. Potter's um, uh, connections between Peter Rabbit and Br'er Rabbit, and I don't know how well that will go down. <laughs> But in the so the last the last bit of the book actually talks about ways that contemporary authors have reclaimed Br'er Rabbit stories and reinvigorated the trickster figure. Um, and can you tell me a bit about some of the ways in which tricks, the trickster figure remains relevant today, and how authors have continued to find inspiration in these narratives? I think Ralph Ellison and you talk about Invisible Man is yes is one of them. Yes, that's right. Um, so in in uh, that famous book by Ralph Ellison. Um, Invisible Man, which was one of the first novels which really highlights uh, racial issues and racial equality in America. The protagonist, the Invisible Man, is tested by a series of trickster figures, and it's through this testing that he actually himself learns how to become a little bit more of a trickster. Because part of the reason, of part of the reason that things become so difficult for him, is because he's so earnest and trusting, mm. but actually the odds are pitted against him you know he's manipulated by people he's used by people um and so the trickster is takes him on a journey to towards learning towards knowledge and Mm. and at the end of the book he's able to he lives underground to begin with and he's able to come up and face society Mm. um but what we'll find is these harlem renaissance writers drawing from and the harlem renaissance was in 1920s was a big celebration a sort of big outpouring of African American writing and poetry, mm. and a lot of these writers were then using the trickster figure in their work, but not the Joel Chandler Harris version, mm. but the original um, slave trickster figure, which is full of that old anarchic energy and linked with West African cultural forms as well. So it's like taking back the trickster from the pages, that whitewashing in Harris's book, mm. and and giving you know rebirthing it in their own work. And using the trickster as a way to also instill a sense of pride in that African past, mm. which is often, which especially in America had been extremely severed, uh, perhaps more so than in the Caribbean. Mm. Um, so, and, and then you've got nowadays, you know, there's uh, um, I don't know if you watch American Gods, Neil Gaiman. I've seen one episode. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, to be, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan myself but there's an Anansi trickster figure oh, Mr. Okay. Anansi in American Gods and yeah. Neil Gaiman's also written a, 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 um, a book called um, Anansi Boys and mm. and you'll find it, Marvel Comics play with the, the trickster figure mm. in there in some of their comics it, this is more Anansi than Bear Rabbit but you'll find that um, one of the origin stories for Spider-Man is that he was mm. bitten by an Anansi, an Anansi trickster in mm. Ghana. Okay. So, so there's so many different yeah. ways that the story kind of seeps it can seep into modern culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a way of uh, everybody loves the trickster as well because it's always the most fascinating character because they're yeah. morally ambiguous, as you said yeah. before. Well, you talk a bit about the Jungian kind of archetype of the trickster as well as this kind of like global archetype yeah um, which exists kind of yeah because i everywhere. think exactly i think that old because there's there's trickster figures in all indigenous cultures mm. and i think that ultimately we are bound by the laws of society mm. but in our fantasies and our imagination we also long to escape from them yeah. and do the things which we're not allowed to do yeah you know, to break the rules but we can't because we have to adhere to 
our social structures. Yeah, so the trick kind of let's inching towards a taboo. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That's so interesting. Mm. Um, and well, yeah. I mean, I guess related to that, my final question is about your your own creative work. Um, and alongside teaching, writing, and uh, your charity and carnival work, you're also a poet. Um, and I think the creative nature of poetry and the way it bends and twists language in ways which can be emotionally powerful but also playful and fun seems like its own kind of linguistic trickery. Linguistic trickery. Um, has the figure of the trickster found its way into your, your poetry or your creative process at all? Yes, it has. And actually, probably I was going to read you a, a poem. Oh, amazing. So this, this one, okay, so this is a poem. So this is a poem that I've written, which um, is in response to the Nancy trickster figure. Mm-hmm. So similar to Br'er Rabbit, you know. The, um, but actually, it's I'm trying to recast the trickster not as a male figure, but as a female figure, because mm-hmm. the trickster is about resistance and survival and resilience especially Mm. and the resilience that resilience is a story of the people of the african diaspora Mm. you know have had to be resilient for for centuries yeah to uh, not only in that process of enslavement but in post emancipation period and then right to all the all the migratory experiences that they've had to um survive like um, you know, like something like David Oluwadi. Yeah. Oh, it's. In- I mean, just quickly, it's interesting that you you've recast Nancy as as a woman because it, there's a part in your book where you talk about um, patriarchy playing a role in in how the Br'er Rabbit figure differed from the Nancy figure because the Nancy stories were uh, often collected by women. I think you talk about that, yes. which is really interesting. Yes. How that kind of again, that's another layer of uh, another complicating factor that's. Uh, influence the ways that these two trickster figures have have differed yes exactly exactly molly and so and so that's uh, so this is why this is um, dedicated to anansi mothers mm-hmm. um as those women storytellers that you that you uh, that you mentioned there so anansi mothers i walk the evening woods for i am crushed and strength has left me in dying autumn light I see, stretched from wire to wooden post, Anansi's webbed, jewelled with rain, light bouncing to the touch of filigree. Umbilical spider thread trace me back to fields of cane, weave the tale that binds me, cross-stitched stories fine as lace, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, Jenny, Eni, Momentine, spinning homes in hostile places, minds strong, hands busy, and backs held arrow straight. When I am meshed in my vexations, Anansi mothers pull me up, whisper stories of our power, and with your silver rope now raise me, home me amongst jewels of rain, unbend my back, then set me free, so I may walk my path again. Wow, Emily, thank you so much for reading that. What an amazing what an amazing note to end on actually. That's really beautiful. Thanks, Molly. And it's my my mother came from um Martinique from the French Caribbean mm. and my grandfather um grew up in a in a, a tiny village where all the young people really went on to become cane cutters. Mm-hmm. So so he kind of narrowly evaded a, a life of cutting cane 
by his grandmother helping him to go to, to university. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a poet and a, and a writer, writer well, yeah. Actually, yeah, Joseph Sirvel. Yeah, so, so, I th- so that's a kind of, to say, it's all the strong women who yeah. have managed to, to, in a way, make it possible for me to be doing this as mm-hmm. well and the sacrifices they've, they've made me to, to be lead, lead, leading a, a, a privileged life mm. wow amazing thank <laughs> you so much i guess yeah we will um i guess wrap it up there but thank you very much for agreeing to talk about your book and all your work i really really enjoyed it um and i guess is there anything that you would like to plug at the end here how can we um, find out more about your work obviously so american trickster um is widely available, yeah. published by Raymond uh, Littlefield. And, um, and available at Leeds, Leeds, available members at the Leeds Library. Library as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, well, if you're interested in any of the sort of interviews or, or readings, and you can put Emily Zobel Marshall, you can look at uh, some YouTube, there's quite a few little YouTube mm-hmm. videos and recordings. Um, I also, uh, for in terms of plugging events, we've mm. got a really interesting series of events that are going to be happening from September onwards mm. in the run-up to the Oluwali Memorial Gardens. Mm. So look out for David Oluwali uh, events. And uh, and I'm also going to be working on a project looking at the role of women in Caribbean carnival cultures. And there was going, there's going to be um, a symposium in Leeds on that as well, mm. and then one in Trinidad and one in California. So... Wow. So over the next uh, year and a half, I'm going to be busy immersing myself in, in, in carnival yeah. and also an Oluwali work. Well, that will be another, that will be a nice bit of uh, chaos and travel and, yes. and celebration uh, after a long, intense focus. Hibernation. Yeah, yeah. period of hibernation. <laughs> exactly. yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That will be amazing. And I, yeah, I'm going to keep an eye out for the Memorial Garden because I'm really excited about that. But hopefully, Molly, we might have. A couple of the events here, actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. We can talk about that well, later. If you become a member of the Leeds Library, <laughs> you'll be able to come to those. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thank you um, so much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at the Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.